Good morning, church. It's good to see you all today. Let me ask you a question. If any questioner or searcher of faith were to ask you, why does your God allow genocide? Why does your God allow bloodthirsty, violent acts in the book of Joshua? How would you respond, church? Which brings us to our title of our message today, A Genocidal God. Where was God's justice in light of the conquests in the book of Joshua? Here's what the Bible has to say about the nature of the conquest in Deuteronomy chapter 20. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breeds remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. Now, at first glance, it, just, it does seem fair. God is merely punishing the Canaanites for their abhorrent or evil acts, such as child sacrifice. But if you think more critically about it, when you think more about the words annihilate and genocide, you realize that God is killing even little children, pregnant women, and even elderly. How can you reconcile a picture of a compassionate and loving God with this picture of Joshua, wherein everybody is annihilated? Can you imagine that? In God's infinite wisdom, there was no other way to save the Canaanites. In fact, a very famous atheist scholar and scientist in the name of Richard Dawkins says this, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now that's a mouthful, but basically this is what atheist people see when they read the book of Joshua, that God is a bloodthirsty and violent God. Now, many of my skeptic friends have also asked me this question, why does your God allow genocide in the book of Joshua? How can I reconcile and believe in such a God? Now, if you're a searcher or a, list, or a person who's questioning the faith today, I welcome you to, to listen and to ask these questions because your questions are indeed valid. Christianity preaches a religion or faith of grace and love, yet this picture of Joshua presents something else. So today we'll be discussing that, exactly this question. Where was God's fairness? And how can we Christians believe in such a bloodthirsty and violent picture of God? Now for our passage today, we'll be discussing the book of Joshua in chapter 7. This is a story of Achan. So after the victory in Jericho, we have Achan who took of the devoted goods. And later on, he is found out. And his whole family, including him, is stoned. Including his little children, his livestock, his wife, all his family members are stoned alongside him. Now, this also seems unjust. But this raises a parallel situation with the question of genocide. Why does God also wipe out Achan's innocent family? Isn't this also unjust? So if we were to answer the question of what happened to Achan's family, we will also f 
find the answer to the question of genocide. Now, here's our strategy in discussing the book or chapter 7 today. First, we'll be talking about the theme of harem or the devoted things. The second is we'll be talking about the theme of corporate responsibility. And third, we'll be talking more about the justice of God. Now, let's go to our passage for today. After Joshua chapter 6, Israel is victorious. They won their first major victory in Jericho. And they're jubilant. They're excited. They're overjoyed. But suddenly, a dark cloud covers their victory. In verse 1, it says this, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, or the harem, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Church, what exactly did Achan do? Achan takes what is devoted, or in the Hebrew, what is harem. You see, God promises to give the land to Israel on one condition. You follow and obey the covenant. And one of those stipulations in that covenant is to avoid taking the things that are devoted to destruction or what is harem. Harem is repeated seven times throughout chapter 7, serving as an important sub-theme for us to understand the book. If we look to Joshua chapter 6, verse 18, here's what it says. Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction or harem, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the harem and make a camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and you bring trouble upon it. You see, it is harem that curse or brings destruction upon Israel because of Achan. Think about it this way. Harem, it's like, it's like a poison, an infection, a contagion that once you take in, it infects you as well. Harem is the very thing that marks the Canaanites for destruction. The Lord says you have to devote all of the Canaanites for destruction, for they are harem. And now the same harem, because Jericho was supposed to be harem. They were supposed to be devoted all for destruction. And Achan took some of the harem and brings that very poison and infection into the Israelite camp. Now we see this more in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 28. Here's what it says. But no harem that a man devotes to the Lord or anything that he has, whether man or beast or his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every harem is most holy to the Lord. In a sense, harem is a poison because it is most holy, because it is most consecrated and devoted only to God. It is an act of worship that you leave something only for God to possess or you leave something for total destruction because it is an act of worship to the Lord. And if something is so holy and it comes into contact with human sinfulness, it is like poison to us. Now, to explain it in a better way, think about this analogy. Let's say that you have been faithfully giving your tithes and offerings to the church for decades. You know, if you think about it, tithes, they're just, mon they're just money, just monetary value. There's nothing sacred about it. But whenever you set aside your first fruits, your 10% your or your tithe, and you give it to the Lord, you consecrate it. You make that holy because you're giving it 
to the one true God that you have devoted yourself to. Now imagine you discover that one of the deacons or the elders has been pilfering and stealing from the tithes and offerings. How would you feel? How do you think God would feel? It would be the, the perversion of the, of the highest order because you have consecrated that money for the Lord alone and someone else is stealing from it. It would be like we were breaking faith with God if we're stealing from the tithes. And in verse 1, it says, the people of Israel broke faith with God because they took what is harem. In verse 2 to 5, it says this, Joshua sent the men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but just let around two or three thousand go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for there are few. So about three thousand men went up and there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gates as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You see, Israel believes Ai to be easy pickings. They came from this miraculous, this very great victory from Jericho. And Jericho was the biggest city. It was a fortress, a stronghold. And now, they face this little city of Ai. In fact, in the Hebrew, Ai literally means a heap of ruins. Imagine naming your city, your town, a heap of ruins. And that's what Ai exactly meant. And brimming with overconfidence, Israel sends only 3,000 men out of the 600,000 fighting men that they had. And they rout, they flee before a heap of ruins. It was a disaster. It was an epic, embarrassing fail. And imagine surrendering and retreating because you just lost 36 men out of 3,000. But this was no laughing matter for the Israelites. They know the Lord has left them. And their enemies now all have heard how weak and how vulnerable they are. And the narrator depicts this scene with so much irony and sarcasm that the pages are dripping wet with, with the sarcasm and irony. Israel, with all her might, routs before a heap of ruins. And Joshua said this, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan? O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I have commanded them. They have taken some of the harem. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. 
I will be with you no more unless you destroy the harem from among you. Israel cannot stand before its enemies because they have also become marked for destruction. They have carried what is harem. They have sinned and like the Canaanites, they rout before a very, very small enemy. And in the next scene, it says this. Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken and he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clans of the Zerahites was taken and he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken and he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them and see they're hidden in the tent, in, in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, and the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his oxen, donkeys, sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble upon us? The Lord will bring trouble upon you today. And Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now, if we look at this scene, it's a tragic and a harrowing scene. Achan, who committed the mistake, is stoned and punished alongside his innocent children, his family, even his livestock. No one was spared. And we're beginning to uncover some of the principles behind the Canaanite conquest. And we come into contact with the second theme that we have to talk about today which is the theme of corporate responsibility. Have you noticed that the story mentions that Achan took of the devoted things, but it is Israel who has sinned? The narrator says again and again and again, it is the people of Israel who has broken faith with God, not Achan, the people of Israel. Even God says, Israel has sinned, not Achan, Israel. And who is under the curse of Harem? All of Israel, not just Achan. Because corporate responsibility implies this, that one person is part of a larger community. One person is part of a larger story. And one person's actions can affect both the community and their story. It means one person can be the offender, but the entire community will suffer for it. God just didn't name Achan the perpetrator. Have you wondered why? If God, in his, all of his infinite wisdom, why couldn't you just tell Joshua, it's him, it's Achan, he's the one that took the harem. But God didn't do that. Instead, God goes through this lengthy and indirect process. He tells Joshua, 
you know, sift them by clan, sift them by tribe, sift them by family, and take them man by man until the perpetrator is revealed. Why does God do this? It is because God wanted to remind Israel that their personal identity, each individual's identity, is tied with their community. Every individual carries on the mantle of their community, of their nation. Achan is never referred to Achan the individual or Achan the person. It is always Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. Achan has always been identified by his father, by his grandfather, by his clan, by his tribe. He is inseparable from the communities, from the groups of people that he has lodged himself into. Have you noticed that it is only Achan who receives so much details about his, his lineage? Even Joshua is only called Joshua, son of Nun. But Achan, the man who has committed the sin, he is known up to four generations. Here's the irony of everything. Israel sends 3,000 men to Ai because they don't want to trouble all of Israel. But because of one man's sin, the entire nation of Israel has to assemble to see the man get punished. It is very troubling indeed. But this represents that one man's sin is interconnected to the entire community. Now, I personally have already also witnessed what one man's sin can do to a community. A, a simple affair between spouses can affect the entire family. An affair can affect the children. And the children, you know, because of the affair, they carry on the wounds of infidelity. They carry on to their children, to their grandchildren. And those sins, those things don't just disappear. And because of the affair, Friends are split. Family members, relatives are split. And it just ruins the whole equilibrium and the harmony of all the family. One person's sin can destroy a community. And we have heard of so many stories, right, of um, these, mega, these mega church pastors who committed sexual sin and how one person's sin affected the entire church, affected the entire community. Although corporate responsibility is now slowly disappearing from our vocabulary today, the reality of it is real and highly relevant today. But you may ask, okay, so what does harem and corporate responsibility have to do with the topic of genocide? And here it is. Because from what we have seen so far, there seems to be no escape from God's curse of harem. Once you have it, they're doomed to destruction. But there was actually one person who avoided it. Guess who? Yes, it is Rahab the prostitute. You see, Rahab was also under the curse of Harem. Remember? She was a pagan Canaanite. But because of her confession in chapter 2, she says this, For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She made an act of faith. And because of that, a Canaanite outsider like her was saved. 
in the end of Joshua chapter 6, we see that her family and Rahab has now become part of Israel and their history are intertwined forever. And similar to Achan, we see that Rahab's actions has consequences towards her family. Because of Rahab's actions, her family is saved alongside her. Her father, her sisters, her brothers, all her relatives, and even all their possessions. Have you ever wondered or thought to yourself, hey, that's also unfair. Why was the family of Rahab saved alongside Rahab? Was it only Rahab? Wasn't she the only person who did the right thing? For all we know, her family members can also be pagan Canaanites committing acts of abomination. But why was Rahab's family saved alongside Rahab? And you're right. It's because of corporate responsibility. Again, one person is part of a larger community. And one person is part of a larger story. And your decisions can affect both the community and their story. Now, a scholar once observed this. He says, he asked this very important question. He says, why does the book of Joshua, the stories of the conquests of Israel, their history, why does it begin in the house of a prostitute named Rahab? You see, this pagan Canaanite prostitute in Rahab, she was the very antithesis of Israel's values. For a country or nation like Israel who was so concerned with holiness, with cleanliness, with what is right, with what is morally right with God, suddenly they have Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, a woman in a time wherein everything was so patriarchal, where women were seen as subhuman. Rahab was seen to be the hero in the story of Israel. Now, you really can't make this stuff up because it was in direct contradiction to what Israel stood for. Now, imagine this. Imagine all of us today went back to World War II and let's say we were all in Nazi Germany. And let's say, you know, Hitler at the height of his power is giving a speech right now in front of you. And you're one of, you know, the Nazi supporters. You're clapping your hands, you're enjoying, the, you're enjoying the, his speech. And Hitler gives his, his usual rhetoric that, you know, the Jews, they're subhuman. They're greedy, they're evil, and it is our, our Aryan responsibility to wipe out all the Jews. And there you are, you know, supporting him, clapping your hands. And by that time, Hitler's already killed millions of Jews. And after his uh, rousing speech, he comes down from the podium. Then suddenly, an assassin comes out of nowhere. He, he brings out a gun, then he points it to him, and he cocks it, and bang, he shoots it at Hitler. But before the bullet can make its mark on Hitler, a bystander suddenly jumps in the way and takes the bullet. And Hitler is saved by the bystander is shot. And Hitler, wanting to reward and send his gratitude to this bystander, goes closer to this bystander. And lo and behold, he discovers that the bystander is a Jewish woman. Now imagine how ironic that would be. Imagine how the, the pundits and the journalists would write the headlines. Nazi dictator 
uh, Hitler, who hates Jews, gets saved by a Jewish woman. Imagine how Nazi Germany would be retelling the story of the heroic Jew who saved Hitler, or if that story would be told at all. Now, the irony here is too delicious. It doesn't make sense. But that's exactly what happens in Israel's story. It is Rahab the prostitute, a Canaanite pagan prostitute, who is the hero of the story. And she is the one who made the victory, or one of the people who made the victory of Jericho possible. But of course, sometimes when we read the story, we don't really notice it anymore. Because maybe for us, it was never a question of unfairness, but it was always a question of our self-centeredness when we talk about the genocide. Because we never seem to complain when we receive blessings and gifts from God. Because we want to receive gifts from God and blessings from God, even though we don't deserve it. But that's also unfair. You don't deserve those blessings. But when you find ourselves experiencing suffering, we begin to be angry. We begin to, to curl up our fists and point our fingers at God, asking Him, where is your justice? Where is your fairness? And we only do that when we are experiencing suffering, not when we're experiencing blessings from Him. And what that reveals about our human nature is our double standards and our, not our proclivity for fairness or justice, but our own selfishness. Now, our culture today has wired our minds to think only for ourselves. We think in terms of, what does this have to do for me? What's in it for me? And in the pretense of fairness, we are offended by the genocide or by what happened to Achan's family because we, can't, we don't want those things, those unfair punishments to happen to us. Hence, we complain. But we never ever complain when we see the gracious gift and, and blessing that God gives to Rahab's family and to Rahab and by choosing Israel who didn't deserve it. Because we also, like Rahab, wants to, re wants to receive blessings and grace and undeserved gifts from God. In the same way, we have to realize that God was not genocidal after all. Because he chose to save Rahab, a Canaanite and a pagan. If he was willing to save her, he was more than willing to save all the Canaanites. If only they wanted to. But you may still ask, but what about the innocent family of Achan? Wasn't that unfair? Now, we complain because we think it's not right for an individual to pay for the sins of another. But we struggle to understand the consequences of our own sin, that every individual's sin has consequences beyond the self. It goes to the community. It affects and destroys the community. Every decision that we make can either contribute to the collective good or to the collective evil of the community. And we see this today in the reality of life. An affair of a parent can destroy his family. A single pastor's sin can destroy his church. A government official who takes bribes can destroy his nation. And a president of state such as Hitler 
can destroy the world. Is God a genocidal and bloodthirsty God? No, He is not. Because He is more than willing to save and give grace to marginalized people like Rahab. And He is more than willing to save all of Canaan if only they made it possible. Is God unfair and unjust in sending Achan's family to their debts? Now, if you were to think about it with an individualistic mindset, yes, it does seem unfair. But if we realize that Israel and God always thought about life in corporate, in corporate responsibility, in, in a sense, in the terms of community, it would not be so unfair. We begin with this question, where was God's fairness? Where can we Christian, how can we Christians believe in such a bloodthirsty and violent picture of God? Think about God's grace. Think about God's justice to marginalized prostitutes like Rahab. Then we begin to reconsider the pointedness of this question. Now here are just some application points that I want uh, you to take home with. Is my notion of fairness an individualistic one or a corporate one? Do I view my life with gracious gratitude or with entitlement? Am I able to welcome and love others as members of my community? Now, some years ago, I was driving in the middle of the night. Um, it was around 11 or 10 p.m. I think it was around, it was in the corner of Quezon Avenue and Dituazon, and I saw a, a young woman standing by the curb. And she was wearing the, the, the shortest of clothes, the skimpiest of outfits, the most revealing um, of outfits. And her eyes were scanning back and forth, looking for something. But you can also tell by looking at her eyes that they were devoid of life, as if her eyes were saying, there's no more hope for me anymore. And I began to wonder I wonder what were the conditions in this person's life, this young woman's life, that forced her into prostitution. I wonder how often she has to give up her human dignity just so her family could eat. I wonder how often she has been judged and criticized and mocked for being dirty, unclean, or disgusting. And I wondered to myself, what would happen if on one Sunday morning, this woman would enter the four walls of our church. When you begin to question the justice of a loving God, I wonder whose definition of love and justice do we have in mind? Because I have found no other place, I have found no other faith, no other God who redeems marginalized prostitutes like Rahab and makes them the hero of history. Perhaps in an ideal world, individuals shouldn't pay for the crimes of another. But we live in such a broken and tainted world that an individual in the name of Jesus Christ had to die for his community. And now that's unfair. That's unfair to the highest level because he was an innocent man. But I'm glad that God allowed this unfairness for you and for me. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this Sunday morning that we can discuss Joshua chapter 7 and learn more about the idea of corporate responsibility. Allow us to see more, Lord, in the lens of community, in the lens of how our actions can affect other people. Allow us to embody the spirit of community as your son Jesus had as well, Lord. And he served and lived his life for the community, not for himself. Lord, when we experience injustice and suffering, Lord, may we look as well to the grace and the undeserved blessings that we have received from you. When we begin to question your fairness, allow us to ask the question, whose definition of justice am I using? These things we pray, Lord, in your most precious name. Amen. Well, church, happy Sunday. Thanks again for tuning in this, uh, this Sunday morning. I hope you have a blessed Sunday and a great week ahead of you.